What a terrific first session. Really, really terrific. <clears throat> to us, it is shocking that this object could ever have been regarded as the world's greatest work of art, this pious platitude in marble. But for 50 years it was, and this is the legacy of Johann Joachim Winkelmann's remarkable History of the Art of Antiquity of 1764, the book that first propounded... Oh! How did that happen? Okay. Um, um, that this work, this pious platitude of marble, but for 50 years it was Winkelmann to Winkelmann, this was the pinnacle of ancient perfection. Winkelmann's book was the first to argue and to present to us an idea which now is, is permanently embedded in our minds that art develops much as living things do through an inevitable cycle of growth, maturity, and decay. This second century Roman copy of a Greek, Greek bronze was the pinnacle. Having reached that pinnacle, classical beauty had nothing to do but shrivel away and die. It's a weird book. Winkelmann spent a lot of time looking at this sculpture, and he said that it, like all other male nudes, displays a left testicle that's larger than the right. He looked very closely. But there is, there is something wonderful about Winkelmann arbitrarily choosing this piece because Apollo, according to classical mythology, was alone among the immortals, the only one who understood the will of Zeus, that is to say, who understood the fabric of reality. He presided over the nine muses, which meant he had sway over all the branches of knowledge and experience, not merely art. And the building that celebrated, that, that celebrated the work of the muses, the ancient Museon, was a cultural multiplex, a combination academy, library, in which sculptures and paintings were merely a pleasant adjunct. It's the library we remember as the principal feature of the great Museon at Alexandria. This is the idea that makes possible the modern museum. Now, to be sure, there had been museums in the Renaissance well before Winkelmann. <clears throat> The word museum was revived as early as 1539 by the humanist Paolo Giovio, who spoke of his painting collection as a museum. The word at first did not mean a purpose-built freestanding structure. 16th centuries were invariably housed in a gallery, like the tribuna in the Uffizi. And gallery is a word that has for us become synonymous with museum, but it originally meant simply a long passage open at one side into, into a colonnade. And for a time, it even seemed as if the word for the new institution, the name, would not be museum, but antiquarium, the word Albert V used for the structure he built in Munich in 1569. Now, these early museums differed from those of today in one essential. They arranged their objects according to pleasing decorative patterns on the wall. We see this in Zofani's celebrated painting of, of the Uffizi. When more formal grouping became the practice during the course of the 17th century, this was invariably done according to national schools. And we see this, um, well, there's Napoleon taking, taking the Apollo Belvedere. Um, 
We, we see this, for example, in the plan of the Upper Belvedere in Vienna from 1781, strict division of Venetian, Florentine, Netherlandish art. But what all these collections had in common, from the humblest Danish Kunst und Wunderkabinett to the mighty trove of statuary at the Vatican, was that they were compendia of discrete and distinct objects. This is what Winkelmann changed. The concept of stylistic evolution at, at one throw instantly connected every object to every other object to a precise and interlocking relationship, part of a larger whole. After Winkelmann, an art collection was more than a corpus of detached treasures, but a coherent system of thought. And we see that, particularly in Germany, in the great in the great museums of the early 19th century. Here, Leo von Klenze's Glyptothek in Munich begun in 1816, which takes you on an orderly procession, much, much as Winkelmann's orderly procession through classical antiquity. Self-contained presentation um, of art in a context which, which rhyme visually with the art on display, and the whole thing given a tidy front of a temple, a temple of Apollo. And you see this also in <clears throat> Schinkel's magnificent Altus Museum in Berlin, begun in 1824. Statues in the center in the Pantheon-like rotunda, and then a neat stylistic procession on the outside. This was not as easy to do as was thought. It was fiercely debated in Berlin what to do with bad art. <clears throat> was it the duty of the museum objectively to depict all the currents of the history of art, even its loathsome back eddies? What do you, th what do, you do with Viverini and Crivelli and other indigestible artists of the mannerism? Schinkel's principal advisor in Berlin, Alois Hurt, believed that there must be no censorship, no pruning. The historical record must be presented as it was, intact. And Schinkel, something of a Hegelian idealist, however, preferred that a museum serve as an instrument of inspiration as well as instruction. First delight, he admonished. First delight, then instruct. His idea was rather than merely consigning undesirable mannerist works to the cellar, he had the felicitous notion of grouping them together as a gallery of abnormalities which sounds distressing to us at the, the end of the, uh, end uh, after World War II. Um, and this idea, this idea ricocheted across the Atlantic to the first large modern museum in the United States. Uh, but forgot to say this. This, to me, is the greatest image of a 19th century museum. This is the rendering that Schinkel published showing the stair hall of the Altus Museum, and his point was that the art on the wall should be looked at, here's a father and son, and then applied to the civic life of the city out there. And look at the man over the boy, looking, of course, at a tableau of Schinkel-designed buildings. But art, art is a civic instrument, but you do your civic act out there, not in the museum, as we saw today. Even, even as... <clears throat> Schinkel was building his museum. The United States already had a collection which was presented again as a coherent system of thought. 
This is the Peel Museum in Philadelphia, which has a very tidy and orderly walk through art and a walk through nature. This is the famous image of a self-portrait by Charles Wilson Peel. And I want to call your attention to the figures in the background. They're doing three things. Astonishment first, the woman ex exclaiming as she sees the, the, giant, the giant mastodon mounted there, father and son conferring, and the man in the back contemplating. This, this, these are the three things, astonishment, education, contemplation, in a framework of discussion that is central to the museum. However, <clears throat> however, <clears throat> these same developments are happening rapidly in the Natural History Museum as well. And what strikes me about this is that Peel, typical Philadelphian empiricist, draws no distinction between the stuffed animals below and the painted portraits above. He displays here his two tools of knowledge, his painter's palette and his taxidermy tools. Both are ways of describing the world, recording it, and presenting it. But the, the impulse to systematize knowledge in this way that you see here runs throughout the Enlightenment, represented by Diderot's Encyclopedia of 1751. The impulse, if anything, was even stronger in science. Even as Winkelmann was researching, Carl Linnaeus published his famous 10th edition of his Systema Naturae, which codified the class classification system that we still use today, the double-barreled genus and species names. The whole thing meticulously unfolded in tabular organization. Again, an interlocking arrangement of relationships presented as a coherent body of thought. And we see the attempts in the great early 19th century images of science as an attempt to understand the totality of nature. The frontispiece of Charles Lyell's Principles of Geology tries to lay bare in a cross-section the four types of rock formation that were then understood. Or this wonderful image, Henri de la Beche, the first depiction of the ancient world, or ancient world, prehistoric world, based on the fossil record, an image that would have momentous ramifications in natural history museums. Now, <clears throat> it was not possible to lay out a natural history museum with the same linear clarity with which Winkelmann did. Problem was, you'd have a museum with one entrance and an infinity of exits. Could not be done. This is Darwin's 1837 field notebook for his, his, first, his first diagram of the ramified evolutionary tree. <clears throat> so when, when a, a natural history museum had to tackle the presentation of this kind of information, um, <clears throat> it did so according to a principle of systematics, which is the taxonic grouping of animals and plants according to their, their anatomical properties. When you, when you brought Darwin into the mix, you could not show the whole story. So it became standard practice by the 1880s to show the fierce adaptation of, of habitats at the margin to change the animal's form within them. This is, this is the uh, gorilla mounted by uh, Carl Akeley. Now, these ideas that I traced in the 18th and 19th century continue right up 
right up. Uh, <clears throat> right up into 20th century modernism. The first exhibition in this country of modern art as a totality presented it in a sequential fashion that I think Winkelmann would have appreciated. But in this case, there were three distinct threads. Al, um, Arthur Davies organized a realist lineage passing from Manet through Toulouse-Lautrec, a romantic lineage from Delacroix through Odillon Redon, and a classical one from Ang to Picasso. So it's really an evolutionary tree more, more akin to Darwin than Winkelmann. And there, there, you see it laid out. Now, this scheme had a great influence, I believe, on Alfred Barr, who instituted something much like it um, in the initial layout of the Museum of Modern Art in 1939, whose multiple levels permitted something, um, whose, whose multiple level, whose permitted these multiple lines to unfold grandly as they rose through the building, twir twirling responsively around one another in the manner of a double helix. <clears throat> of course, later, Barr published a very different kind of diagram, which this is the famous drawing of an ever-advancing present, his idea of a torpedo, the museum's collection with a propeller in the back moving through time. And this is perhaps the last optimistic vision of an art museum embracing the totality, totality of art as a coherent scheme. And when the Museum of Art makes a, yep, when the Museum of Art makes a diagram now of relationships, it's not linear, but it's this interlocking one. For my text today, I took, um, I used a program named Wordle. Do you know Wordle? Wordle, you can put a body of text in and the computer will then organize it for you in terms of how much emphasis each word gets. This is what's happened to the museum. If you took my talk and disorganized it, you'd have something like this. Let me take you through Natural History Museum of Washington. Let me just give you three case studies as I close of what is happening in Natural History Museum here. In 1910, Teddy Roosevelt went to Africa, bagged three white rhinos from Central Africa, and mounted them where they were proudly displayed. By 1959, they were a little embarrassed by them, put them into a diorama. 2003, they had become a great embarrassment and were discreetly folded away. I saw that slide this morning of Roosevelt wrapped uh, the Natural History Museum here. I fear something might be in store for that at some point. And this is the museum now as it progressively dismantles the coherence of what was once coherent. To see a coherent depiction of the 19th century, please come to the Wagner Free Institute of Science in Philadelphia, whose 1885 installation is still completely intact. Two warning signs. The Museum of Natural History in Paris, which was an extraordinary 19th century collection, was gutted in 2006 and turned into a bizarre stampede of terrified animals moving through time in space on a strange journey to what? Environmental apocalypse? This is not the comprehensible journey of Noah's animals. This is an admonitory journey of fear. 
Even more alarming here, and this is the most alarming, the one I want to close on. This is the, the Colonial Museum in Paris of 1931, Museum of Colonial Art, <clears throat> now made into a museum of immigration and, uh, am I done? That's the flag, but yeah, I guess I went on too long. Um, so let me, let me read the last paragraph, if I may. I was going to show the, uh, what happened at the Cape Brunley. Uh, oh, I thought, yeah. The Cape Brunley, <clears throat> ominous warning, uh, ominous warning of things to come. Uh, this is a five alarm fire for museums. So I, I, after this morning, I'd called a five middleman alarm for what's, <laughs> what's going on here. With deep nervousness and I think self-hatred of the collection, the director made a, made a museum which does not present an orderly system of knowledge, nor an orderly facade, but rather a rambling, anxious object whose, whose art and ethnographic displays are separate, detached, little lozenges of thought. So what I ask you to do, and you see the disintegration of museum plans, what I would ask you to do is to think of my title, I Swear by Apollo. That is, as some of you know, that's the first line of the Hippocratic Oath. We need nine muses to write a Hippocratic Oath for museum directors. And they should remember the first, the first principle, first, do no harm, I swear by Apollo.